welcome to Radiate Radio, your international sound wave for sit-downs, podcasts and more. So stay tuned and follow our Instagram page for the latest. Hi, this is In Retrospect. I'm Julian, you're one of your hosts. Hi, I'm Tobias, one of your other hosts. You also remember us from last year. But right now we're joined with two new members of the group. First, Lucrezia. Lucrezia, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lucrezia. I'm in my last year in international studies. Uh, we're also joined by not a new member, Franca. Hello, I'm Franca. I am a first year student at, well, the university, but also this study. So, this first episode of the new year will be about the illiberal left, otherwise known as political correctness or PC culture. PC culture is something that has been more contentious in our day-to-day life. Some people claim that it is um, a, a positive vehicle for a civil discussion, uh, which doesn't offend anyone. Other people claim that it might be detrimental to freedom of speech and stop freedom of thought and freedom of, and discussions in important topics that might be um, reduced to binary good or bad uh, topics, for instance. One of the proponents for today's statement is Professor Jeffrey Finpol. He's Professor of Economics at our university. He's also involved into a project called History Reclaimed right now. It's an initiative together with a few other academics uh, where they propose that the current PC culture is actually hurting freedom of speech and is arguing for more dialogue between opposing parties in society and also on campus, of course. Today we'll interview Vin Paul to hear a bit more about his views and also about a book which he's writing and will be published somewhere next year. Yeah. Okay, so the first question will be a of general one. Um, what does freedom of speech entail? Um, and does political alignment affect the conceptualization of it? Oh, well, we start with a big philosophical <laughs> question. So we're saying, what does freedom of speech entail? Well, gee, I mean, in general, I think that uh, the U.S. has done a pretty good job with uh, legislating what free speech ought to be. You know, the Bill of Rights, I think, is a good model for almost everybody around the world. I think that some countries such as Canada and maybe Germany restricted a little bit uh, too much. And you can see there's some historical reasons for doing so in Germany. Um, in general, I think that that's already fairly well understood and encompassed by existing political systems, and there's no need to philosophize beyond that or theorize beyond what legal scholars have already been doing. Okay, fair point. Um, then relates to kind of the next question. Is freedom of speech limitless? Yeah, is freedom of speech limitless in my opinion? Oh, wow. All right, so how could this possibly be used against one? That's what one imagines <laughs> when you're answering a question like this on air. But, I mean, in general, uh, I actually think that our democratic societies engage in censorship of various kinds all the time. For example, we say there's certain things that shouldn't be on the TV and on the radio that would be harmful for children. And I think that, in general, we have to decide as a society what's going to be within acceptable bounds to keep people from being too violent or too antisocial, because people are certainly susceptible to these kinds of things if the authorities permit it. So, 
I would not say that it's limitless, and I think there's fairly few scholars who would say that it should be uh, limitless. I think that's oversimplifying things. We have to remember that there's always going to be a balance of what certainly should be permitted in public spaces because it <laughs> creates more harmony. Um, at the same time, I know that harmony isn't always uh, the best goal, and sometimes you need dissonance and dissonant voices, <laughs> and that's the whole point of science and democracy. So uh, certainly, we have to find happy mediums. I really like that answer. Um, now let's circle back a bit to, of course, campus where we uh, are very close to right now. Uh, and I think like PC culture or like political correctness culture is um, sort of an issue on our campus as well. And would you argue that PC culture or PC culture on campus uh, potentially poses a danger to the quality uh, of education we receive? Well, I mean, I think that people need to be free to harbor a full spectrum of opinions that society has determined are within these acceptable bounds. So, for example, if half the population believes something, let's say, about the migrant crisis, and then scholars aren't allowed to say those things because most scholars are further to the left, mm -hmm. then we're potentially missing out on what a lot of people consider to be common sense or their own experience. And you could argue the same thing um, from switching the, the equation. So I think that while, not, while scholars uh, maybe philosophically shouldn't be allowed to just uh, say anything because they have certain responsibilities to society, opinions that are considered relatively uh, mainstream and relatively... Um, important by significant sectors of the populace should be able to be given a hearing. Um, and that means in science and in democracy, you need to have an opposition party. Okay. And so if we're not allowing an opposition party at all within academia or even within our political debates or within journalism, um, then we start to shut down some of the most fundamental things that make uh, human rights possible. Okay, okay. I really because like I would say that human rights are a major side effect of uh, our democratic and our scientific systems, which we've evolved um, in Europe and elsewhere for several hundred years and are now spreading uh, around the world because they're good ideas. It's really interesting. Um, and does this threat also, this threat by PC culture, also extend to beyond campus, like general society or public opinion? So a threat of PC culture. I mean, I think that can be overstated. I don't th think that PC culture per se is threatening. I think <laughs> that what we have to remember is that for the last 50 years plus, we've been moving towards greater equality in our societies, and that has included speech acts where we don't make people feel marginalized by you know, just making crass jokes. Uh, when I was a kid, you could make crass jokes, uh, which today would not be tolerated, and, that, and that's probably generally a good thing because there's a significant proportion of society who is the butt of these jokes, and it's just not a, a good thing to uh, promote inclusivity and mm -hmm. everybody's right to be accepted. So I think we have to remember that we have made an awful lot of progress and some of this has been in the name of so-called PC culture. I think that where we get into a problem is when proponents of quote PC culture start becoming 
to negative rather than um, positive. So promoting equality is great, but thinking that you need to denigrate other people, even if they're a dominant group historically, having to denigrate them in order to create freedom isn't necessarily the case. It could be a win-win scenario. So we don't necessarily need to downgrade or denigrate European culture, let's say like Beethoven, in order to promote uh, African musicians. We can promote everybody equally. And it seems like some people now think that in order to promote, uh, let's say, African musicians in Mali, you have to trash the European tradition. And PC doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. It could be uh, a system which works well for everybody, where everybody can uh, bring each other up. So in other words, it doesn't have to be a threat, but people are treating it like a threat nowadays. Um, and and, and they're acting as though, well, I think we just see a lot of debate, certainly fueled by online anonymity, where people mm -hmm. become very intolerant of other relatively mainstream opposition opinions, thinking that in order for their side's goals to be met, they mm -hmm. have to trash the other side. And that, to me, is a zero-sum game kind of thinking <laughs> and has not been proven necessary over the last couple hundred years. Well, I would also argue that's caused because of the way we consume information today. Yeah, I'm afraid so. So, I mean, these aggregate media websites where people are directed to multiple sides of an issue, um, in many ways, are kind of a good idea because it's very easy to get trapped in your bubble and the algorithms keep giving you more extreme versions of what you kind of already think. I see. Uh, and related to this, do you also think that the rise of PC culture uh, sort of also uh, has like a polarizing effect on the rise of the extreme right? Sort of yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that as people get fed things by algorithms, they only see news stories that say that vaccines are filled with microchips or something <laughs> like that. And then you can easily go down a rabbit hole of kind of true antisocial behavior. Um, and that's where the news companies, I would argue, have a duty, and certainly I think politicians should even regulate the news so that it's more centrist and more balanced. Now, this may sound like I'm anti-free speech or something. <laughs> However, in the United States, mainstream news up to the 1980s there was a law which said that it had to be relatively balanced and centrist. And then Ronald Reagan got rid of it during the whole deregulation phase. So neoliberalism got rid of this and said you should be able to do whatever you want. However, what this meant was extreme polarization. So we saw in the U.S. the rise of people like Rush Limbaugh, you know, these kind of right-wing shock jocks who then create an echo chamber where a whole group of the populace basically votes against their own self-interest because of what they're told on the radio. And this is considered news, and I think Fox News in the U.S. is kind of the same way. So I think that we see the rise of highly partisan radio stations, and I think, honestly, that the BBC and in Canada, the CBC and the Netherlands One system that came out of World War II is, in many ways, this kind of benign, uh, enlightened uh, lifting of the social discourse doesn't seem very popular these days, but it certainly maybe helped to make populations more 
how shall we say, um, uh, well, less polarized and more inclined to consider themselves just the listeners part of society and, and part of just uh, part of a greater whole. So I think that having news be you know, less driven by algorithms might be an answer to, to some of our problems today. And basically politicians should pay, play an active role in fixing this problem. Yeah, absolutely, uh, they should. And I think right now we're seeing politicians who are driven more by social media than we've ever seen before. And I think social media is being driven by these algorithms. So in some ways, the radicalism we see today, I think, is literally being driven by algorithms, which is kind of crazy. And has the COVID pandemic also accelerated this movement? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that this should be a matter of science. We should be able to look at the pros and cons of proposed uh, degrees of lockdown, let's say. We could think about strong lockdown, medium lockdown, late lockdown, what kind of measures, and we should be able to look at the pros and cons and measure these statistically. Instead, we see almost no science being done on some of the really hot button issues like do lockdowns even work? Like in the long run, in the short run, one uh, article in The Lancet, the top U.S. medical journal, mm -hmm. said that there isn't much of a correlation in the long run between uh, lockdowns and the number of deaths per million in your population. In the short run, it certainly slows things down, but maybe not in the long run. And we just need more science. I'm not going to say one way or the other, but we haven't seen this kind of thing being measured. And instead, politicians have been just talking about the message and unanimity and basically propagandizing the people rather than treating us like scientists. They're treating us like sheep to be uh, talked down to. And so I think that this cynical move by politicians during COVID to just spread a uniform public health message has been seen by almost every intelligent person for what it is, which is which is uh, enforcing too much unanimity. And then this fuels anger and aggression and people who don't agree will then start to lash out in various ways. Whereas if we thought our politicians were treating us like rational beings who can make our own decisions, albeit we all have to come together for the public good, of course, but once, but we should be able to have access to real data in order to do that. And I think that right now we've been treated as sheep. And I think that this algorithm and advertising culture and the social media culture has contributed to politicians taking this tack rather than treating us more like they used to do maybe 40 years ago and say, here's the real facts. Um, and we've decided to take this decision based on these facts. But right now they don't even give us that background at all. They just say, we've made this decision. Okay, kind of cause like a backlash from yeah, people. and then and then people should say to their politicians, "You are not treating us like adults. Let's see the actual data. You know, if you're going to do this policy, where's the studies?" And at first, you can't always have studies. It takes time to do. But we still want to be. I think we've been really treated like not like democratic citizens during this. Okay, um, and basically, the polarization is very prominent in the United States. Um, does it also link back to, for example, the Netherlands or other European countries? Does this polarization of extreme left versus extreme right also take place here? Yeah, I mean, 
I think that in a parliamentary system, there's always been more of a chance for centrist and multiple parties to come together. So the parliamentary system that Europe has is less likely to just be a two-party system. And I think that will help more people uh, accept the way society is being run uh, and lead to, to less deadlock. Although in recent years, we've seen more of this kind of deadlock in various European countries as well. But I think that the structure of European parliaments enable the possibility for more dialogue and more working together. I see. Thanks very much. Okay, so the next question is, uh, so like my colleague is a researcher writing a book. Mm -hmm. um, to be honest, I don't know much about the book. He does more, but could you maybe uh, briefly explain what your book is about and what's the main goal, or main yeah. uh, statement? Well, the general goal of the book is to do with the article that I wrote in The Spectator about the, the stolen country. Oh yeah, I read that one. <laughs> and so that's another uh, minefield that what can, one can get into. But what I'm trying to get at is fundamentally what we've just talked about, which is I don't think European history needs to be completely trashed in order to promote equality and positive narratives about non-European people. So I think that right now the mistake everybody's making is to suggest that the only way to say positive things about, let's say, Islamic or Indian or Chinese or African culture is we need to take the Eurocentric narratives down a couple of pegs, and maybe 50 years ago there was too much Eurocentrism, 30, 40 years ago. But historians have been trashing Eurocentrism for a long time, uh, ever since I was uh, a kid. And I think that fundamentally what we need to recognize is that there are good things and bad things in almost every culture, and we can't turn history into a zero-sum game again, where in order to build somebody up, you have to tear somebody down. It's possible to tell positive and good things about everybody. And I think that this is fundamentally important in the case of Europe, because um, since modern human rights and democracy and science evolved as we have them now, the institutions that became the United Nations, for example, the Geneva Convention, a lot of these evolved in early modern and late medieval Europe over the last 500 years. And while there were other positive traditions in other places, a lot of the actual institutions in place, say from the UN, evolved in a kind of Eurocentric milieu 100 years ago. So if we try to erase European history and the positive contributions of what some Europeans have done here and there in the name of liberty and human rights and science and democracy, if we only look at those things negatively, then we actually are obscuring the foundations of how modern human rights came to be. So if we want equality, and the left today absolutely wants equality, and I absolutely want equality, and I'm very much a leftist in that way, mm -hmm then we have to remember that our very conception of human rights as we have them now, a lot of it came out of these French revolutionary struggles, these Enlightenment era struggles. Not all of it, but a lot of it did. And if we only see the Enlightenment and the French Revolution in a negative way, then we risk losing the ability to reproduce human rights in many parts of the world today, human rights regimes in many parts of the world today where they desperately need certain elements of these European institutions, not wholesale, but elements. 
So in other words, we might lose the thread on how to create and sustain human rights if we do not understand the history of how modern human rights came to be, as we know them. And so my book is saying that the history of European colonialism does not need to be seen in a wholly negative light. I certainly say plenty of negative things or plenty of atrocities one can point to. But at the same time, a lot of these processes are kind of purely economic and things that were path dependent and that nobody really made a conscious decision to do. It's just like today you can't decide not to use a cell phone. They're just going to be there. It's very difficult not to use it. And it was the same way with a lot of the decisions that were taken hundreds of years ago. So we have to see history as a complex process where people have some agency, but not as much as we think. And the, the stories we can tell about European colonialism can be modern, they can be criticizing uh, and critical. And, uh, but at the same time, we don't need to, in a juvenile fashion, completely 100% trash anybody who was born in Europe uh, over 500 years, which I think is what a lot of people are trying to do. Um, but is it about like Europeans per se, or more like the people in power in Europe at the time and their expansionary... Yeah, no, this is this book is about early European expansion into the New World and just humble people, uh, but also people in power. And it's also about the reality of how uh, Native Americans and indigenous people interacted with Europeans, telling what I think is a slightly more balanced story than we tend to get now. It's not all one side. And so the point is to try to remind people that science and dialogue and looking at things in a nuanced manner is always the best way to understand the true origins of any system uh, today, not just rhetoric. Um, and that kind of relating to how history is viewed. Um, like I think a big issue recently has been that past uh, historical figures, for example, Columbus or I think there's also some Dutch examples, yeah. um, should they, um, like for example, should statues for, for example, Columbus still exist, or should we use current day standards to judge? Or should yeah, we be critical? Yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, about actual statues, communities change their minds about things. Sometimes things are raised for a hundred years, and it means something to a community for a while, mm -hmm. and then after a while, they decide that it's not really worth talking about or, or monument monumentalizing. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really one way or the other uh, saying that uh, people shouldn't be able to take down statues, but what I think we should do is, generally speaking, work within the democratic system, and if you don't like a statue in your town, convince the town council, convince the people in your town that this statue is actually not a great thing to have up in town and that it's kind of a, a, a smirch on the, on the town's uh, you know, fabric. And I think that if you make a good argument that these people truly were uh, bad, mm -hmm. then you will be able to convince the right number of people to, to get these things to work. But that's not, you know, if you're 18, you might want to have everything happen in the next six months. But in the past, when we've tried to force these kind of things too rapidly, then this is a pretty fast route to, you know, anarchy and... Uh, the loss of various democratic freedoms, which I don't, it sounds like a great idea, maybe it sounds romantic, but in reality it kind of sucks. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so yeah, so about the, the statues and things, sure, let's talk about it. 
But that's, that's okay. So you're key. arguing for dialogue, basically. Yeah. Okay. And also movements, like for example, last year saw the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, you would argue that the best solution is to interact with both parties. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if there are legitimate things that BLM wants to have done, and there certainly are, mm -hmm. then by all means, do what Barack Obama would say and work within the system to get those things to change. I mean, he worked his way right up to the presidency and was able to do quite a few things that people don't recognize um, to affect equality in society. And then it's very easy uh, for people just to say, okay, we ought to change everything in the next three months uh, according to how I want them, even if most of the people around you don't want it that way. So we have to remember that we're part of society, and so the wise person, uh, the, the Martin Luther King, the Barack Obama, will say, change can happen, change will happen. Look at me, Obama says, I'm president now, it's 2008. Nobody thought this would happen. Uh, even with a name like Obama right after 9-11, you know, it looked like, oh, gosh, there'd be prejudice against him for all sort of reasons. But the fact is, he was a charismatic and reasonable man who knew how to talk to and connect to almost everybody. And people just voted him in, in the landslide. So that can happen almost anywhere you want. And that's the way democracy okay. works best. <laughs> I like that. Uh, of course, we're going to also, in the post work, we're going to talk a bit about your book and, of course, promote it a bit. Yeah. Um, then the last question is basically about the History, history Reclaimed initiative. Yeah. Um, so how did you, like, um, how did you and the other members uh, get together and what's the main goal of this initiative? Yeah, I've known some of the people for years. And so when they were forming this initiative, certainly my spectator piece, uh, you know, was part of helping to galvanize people like, okay, we really are getting a little crazy now if we say that Canada is the, the worst nation on earth, which mm -hmm. some people are arguing. Um, then we need to think, whoa, you know, there's a lot of countries out there who have done all sorts of bad things. And the Canadian government has been has had a pretty good track record on indigenous rights in the last several decades. If you care to look at any of the figures in terms of the money spent, the mm -hmm. representation. So the idea then becomes um, we need to take the inertia in the academic system, which right now is creating a positive feedback loop leading itself further and further left, I would argue, mm -hmm. uh, and further against science and further against dialogue and more into witch hunting and more into saying to somebody, if you argue, you know, like uh, Bruce Gilley did, that uh, there were any benefits to colonialism in Africa, then your whole career should explode. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Scientifically speaking, there are pros and cons to many things, not everything, but there's some pros and cons, and historians, in good faith, if they're not doing it for to score points, should be able to just simply give a neutral uh, picture, a scientific picture of what they're studying. So, um, I study the history of slavery, I know people who study the history of the USSR. You ought to be able to say what the documents say in front of you without fear that your career will be negatively impacted if you say something like, um, oh, it seems like uh, slavery in Europe was becoming less during this century. Where, so in your, in your field, if I say that uh, there was less incidence of slavery over the course of a certain century, many of my colleagues will say, how dare you say something like that? 
Whereas if I was saying slavery was increasing in Europe, then everyone's like, yeah, that's great. And it's just this simple kind of uh, sports team mentality, like anti-Europeanism is the fundamental thing that we're always supposed to be saying. Um, so I got to this point that I realized the whole historical profession is working according to these uh, very childish rules, which are also magnified by certain historians on Twitter who have 10,000 followers and then will you know, tweet out the most outlandish things, usually on the far left. And they're egging people on. So, so a bunch of us realized we need to be able to tell the actual story with nuance. And that's really all we're calling for. There's a bunch of very diverse viewpoints. Not everybody agrees that colonialism <laughs> had that many benefits. But the point is, is people, if the, if the sources are saying something, you should be able to talk about it. And that's really the whole movement. And hopefully, it seems like we've had quite an impact. There's a lot of people who have felt silenced. Mm -hmm. um, there's many, many academics who have come out and said, wow, I just don't feel like I can teach the subject of uh, European expansionism at all. I can't talk about the history of slavery at all. Um, and so people, if they can't uh, give the same courses that they gave 20 years ago, because right now they're afraid of losing their job, we need to shake people out of that kind of uh, uh, negative feedback loop. And that's, that's the purpose. Okay. Um, and for example, you ha would have like a colleague and he would publish an article uh, and you would think that yeah, this is completely out of line, completely maybe racist or something. Uh, how would you address him? Would you? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think anybody that's in History Reclaimed would write something outright like that <laughs> because they've all been vetted. And I mean, you have to remember professional historians and professional scientists have been tested for 20 or 30 years by a whole bunch of peers and peer review processes. So that there's nobody who gets to my position or somebody like that who's going to be outright racist in any <laughs> term or sexist or anything uh, anti-gay. There's, there's almost nobody in the scientific fields who holds uh, this kind of uh, deep prejudice uh, anymore. They'd be rooted out. That's not to say that we don't have unconscious bias and all that sort of stuff. I totally believe that there is plenty of that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at the same time, I think that um, we have to realize that most scientists are going to be pretty reasonable and pretty accommodating and most of us get to this point because we realize that the best thing for society is that we talk. As a scientist, you're somebody who wants to dialogue and discourse mm -hmm. and have a great conversation quote about your topic. Um, and simple prejudice and, and things like that are things that we certainly consciously get over uh, for the most part and you see relatively little of um, when you do get something like that, it's it's rather rare, and usually somebody like that is, is you know, deserves to be shunned if they're actively. So, guys, have you ever like uh, have um, ever felt that you're going to share your opinion because it might be might not be acceptable in in campus, uh, or are you too scared of offending someone by giving their opinion? Have you ever had an experience like that? I think so. I think uh, in like large gatherings, maybe if most of the people have the same opinion and yours drifts a little bit, you tend to avoid or not really avoid, but reduce your opinion a little bit. Uh, just maybe you don't have enough background information or you're not 
so sure about the topic and that could happen. I know it happened to me a few yeah. times in large gatherings. Uh, yeah, what about you guys? Yeah, I agree with you. I kind of had the same experience sometimes. And what I always tend to do when I want to, when I voice my opinion, I try to use certain words like maybe or I'm not sure to mm -hmm. make it less certain so I don't really confront anyone too directly. Yeah, I think like personally, I think it's hard because, you know, when there's a big group, I feel everybody's doing it to some degree. So I feel like the opinion that the group has per se might not actually reflect any individual opinion in the room. But it's just everybody like kind of self-censoring themselves and their beliefs used to be socially acceptable or to be, you know, to portray themselves as being socially competent, you know. So I think that's, you can definitely see it in the university. And I feel like many students, um, uh, right, like many students yeah. who have been in that situation, right? Yeah, I feel like people just kind of go in with a stream. So if, you know, if there's one, uh, especially someone who has a very broad, you know, or not even a broad statement, but just a statement that's very, they think is correct, let's say, then people will very quickly want to surround themselves with that same statement. Whereas, and then you ask them, uh, you know, uh, just when you're with someone one-on-one, -on -one, you ask and they say, yeah, well, actually, no, not really. So I, I do believe that, especially in uh, in university, um, but also I think in just friend groups itself, mm -hmm. depends on how big the friend group is, etc. But I think it happens uh, more often than we actually think. So, uh, yeah. Do you yeah. think it's more because we feel pressured to have the same idea? Or is it because we, are, we don't have enough information to back up our opinion? Yeah, I think so. And I also think people are just sometimes scared. Yeah, I agree. Many times. <laughs> people are just scared and then they think, well, you know, uh, they, uh, yeah, it's just easier as well. Scared, yeah, and scared and being easy, I just, I mean, I've also probably done it like multiple times where I'm just like, yeah, I'll just go along with what you think, even, okay, not everything, because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that's, everything, but. Uh, that's an interesting point, like, when someone says, says something you would say is outrageous, how would you respond, would you like? address them on that? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, thinking of that, I feel like how we respond to radio stuff has been so shaped by the internet. If you think about it, like, mm -hmm. um, I, if I, I, like when I speak with my, my parents, for instance, it's a different reaction when they see things, something's radio. So it would explain why they find it outrageous and how to um, give uh, options to it. Mm -hmm. But I feel for our generation, I think we stopped at just saying this is outrageous and we forget alternatives to the things we find outrageous. I think that's really based because maybe because we grew up in the internet and everything is short, concise, information is really packed. Society is becoming more black and white. Yeah, yeah. yeah. by Professor Finn Paul, of course, in the yeah. past segment. Yeah, yeah. Based to what we talked about before, based on what's happening on campus, would you also argue that academic freedom is being suppressed by PC culture? I think a little bit, because if you think about like the lectures we had, and we have now, they're more neutral. Like in first years, there's some professors that made very uh, strong political statement and now le like less and less. So I think a little bit here, yeah, it's shaping our education as well. Yeah, personally as well, I think that even with, for me, for instance, like when I want to write an essay, I want to do it in a term that I know the teacher might 
disagree with, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to get a good grade. So I feel like if you know a teacher is really aligned to one political thought or really aligned, you rather agree with the teacher rather than, you know, go against and receive a bad grade. Yeah, or they question you. And that is yeah. what I find very difficult in, in a classroom setting, let's say, where I'm like, well, but shouldn't you, you know, well, they ask the question because they think it is not right. That's, yeah. That is, is, well, that's my experience. And I don't yeah. really... I don't know. I don't agree with that, for example, no. that, it's, that they should do that, and that's can affect the whole classroom. I'm in uh, mm. yeah this past semester as well. So yeah, yeah and also the, like that, you just kind of reduce the discussion yeah. part because it's if it's just one way, then there's no really debate going on. So I think yeah. that's sometimes can be a bit of a shame. Yeah, and I think it's important because as well we speak about inclusivity and we speak about all, all this stuff, but like. I think a, a big portion of inclusivity, especially as someone who, you know, like who comes from like a really, really diverse country, I think it's inclusivity of thought and inclusivity of, you know, because where you want it or not, some opinions, you know, of course, w within reason, <laughs> you know, like yeah. of course within reason, like we're not we're not arguing for anyone who is like uh, extremist, like that, but, but some opinions are in society where you want it or not, you know, like and that's something I've, I do sense a disconnect as to like what people actually speak to day-to-day -day life and the sort of discussions we have at university, at least for me, mm -hmm. at, at least. And there's kind of like, and that disconnect, I feel like down the line, you know, as we become professionals, as we, as we join the labor labor market, that has implications of we're really detached of, of reality or we're really detached of day-to-day -day life for many of the people who will be affected by our policies or by our, our, our ideas. Because let's face it, at the end of the day, people who go to university will have higher, more power in society than people who don't, you know, yeah. and I think, mm -hmm. In my opinion, that's the main issue with um, the extent that of, of policing language or policing thoughts in in university. But that's my opinion per se. I don't know if you agree, guys. Um, well, based on the Economist article, where which is also talking about this topic, it also argued that maybe it is part of the zeitgeist they thought. So we should really fight it. It's just the development of like what is deemed correct or what is deemed within the spectrum of talk. So, for example, 50 years ago, we would say stuff that nowadays, of course, is not accepted anymore. And probably in 50 years, the same will happen with us. We're like, yeah, did you really say that to bias? And yeah. then, that's also an argument. So maybe we should just accept the fact that, it's, that this is our time. And these are the current boundaries of the spectrum of what we can talk about. But also in the article, they were saying that maybe your opinion is different than the other one, but it's not that you're trying to offend someone else. It's yeah. just you grow up in a different environment and you have different cultures, and so you voice your opinion, but not in an offensive way. But now, every time you argue something different, it's characterized as offensive or yeah. being harsh. And so that if you didn't stop giving your opinion, then it just you're well, stuck yeah. at one point. Yeah. It also stops evolving then. Yeah. yeah, you just you're stuck yeah. at one point. And yeah. what's in, what's something that's interesting to note for us and to think about is well, how will that be if we're already being so um, not to say non-biased, but you know, um, how will that look like in the future? In like uh, fifty years, then how will that look like? Will people even have opinions? Uh, no, you know, true, what's, yeah. what what will that look like? Uh, the mm. academics and academia itself. Not because uh, academia should be a safe space for everyone to discuss different opinions, yeah. but then if they're always filtered and more and more, then... Yeah, it's almost getting narrowed down with what you can say and do. And... Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, like, 
I do see why people might want to have a safe space to some degree because you know like historically if you look at academia it was mostly by you know like uh, st straight old men you know like that were usually <laughs> yeah. from Europe you know like so I feel this influx of you know like of people who people of color women and as well like people who didn't have that say before in academia if we didn't have the boundaries to allow them to speak and make a safe space for them uh, or you know many minorities so in, in academia I think I feel like they wouldn't be able to speak now yeah. so it's kind of like um i don't think you have to draw the line at one point of course For you know sure. because if you placate to every single uh you know to every single person who wants to join academia i think it's it's just virtually impo impossible because every person has different needs but i don't think at least the at the, at the entry level there should be i i feel like it still should be a safe space so, so for people to still begin to yeah, you know begin or, somewhere, yeah, yeah begin somewhere because i think that's the main thing I, I can i can understand where the argument can be positive for um you know because i can imagine many people feeling you know oh academia is not for me it's mostly for rich people from europe or you know yeah. and i can i can understand that argument per se yes yeah, so basically academia should like academia should be more inclusive yeah but it's difficult to like draw the boundary then from yeah. like but maybe without taking away the different opinion so like more inclusive but then everyone can voice really their own opinion then that would be very interesting because then okay. every like i don't know everyone could just bring their different backgrounds and academia would be more uh just not larger but more just you could have different point of views and maybe yeah. like evolve more in that regard yeah it's a fair point um but we, but, we, but you also talked about with finn paul it's not really about the academia, more about the public square. That before yeah. Yeah. used to be like gatekeepers or like certain news agencies. You also talked about like the news landscape of the US. Yeah. And it used to be far less polarized than it's now. And now also because it's more inclusive, also because of the internet, um, people are starting, are being more polarized and also are living in their own bubbles. Yeah. Um, so is there a solution to that, to like fix this polarization with the new age? For me, I think this will be kind of like <laughs> perhaps uh, too much, for, you yeah. know, or, but like I don't think there should be some degree of gatekeeping by the government because ultimately, like, I don't think that society, you know, like, of course, like people can have their own opinions, stuff like that, but I feel like if if you you consciously ignore like a big, like 50% of their society, I think you're not fulfilling your social contract or, you know, as, as being a part of a citizen or a responsible citizen. In such a complex society as we have in the West, or you know, like especially like in multicultural, uh, you know, multicultural country like this, ignorance is not a stance. Ignorance, ignorance is a privilege for many people. You know, like part of the eco chambers and part of the like you know PC, PC culture promotes this idea of like I can just ignore this. But in the long in long term mm -hmm. uh, issue of that is that people who reject PC culture can have their own spaces that are are unrivaled, their own challenge, and I think that's a bigger issue. Yeah, I think rather than like the issue with PC culture is that people like cancel you or they yeah. don't want to hear anything from you rather than teaching you and like really like explaining why it was offensive or why other people react in that way. Like if you teach people who go against it, then maybe that would be better rather than really yeah. just canceling and be like, okay, you're done, like your career is done, your what, like, whatever is canceled. Like, like include them into the dialogue. Basically. Yeah, because like that you teach the other person and maybe you can also understand the other point of view or why the other person reacted that way or why they 
come like said that comment. So I Give think them that a would voice a little yeah. bit as well. Because yeah. otherwise, if you cancel them, they don't have a voice, and that's where they get yeah. mad, and that's when and also they're know, not issues arise. Yeah, and also they're not gonna learn. So yeah. you just exactly. it's. I feel like it looks like it's a way to just avoid the issue yeah. and like put it somewhere else, but then not really solving it. Yeah, anyway. and I like that because it's kind of like. You know, we, I think we have to acknowledge that there's ugly stuff in our society. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's part of it, per se. You know, like, of course, and we cannot have a discussion about it if we just ignore it yeah. or if, if we, we just try to avoid it. But, again, that's, that's a really, like, extremist vision of PC culture. You know, like, yeah, it depends as well what do you define as PC culture, and each person has different interpretations. But uh, to be clear, I feel like all of us here agree that the stuff we're referring to is, like, the most extreme versions of it. Um, and which you also talked about with Tim Paul, like, does still like politicians nowadays kind of enforce the polarization more than they fix it? Like, I don't know about different countries, I just know from my own country, it's just a lot of, like, uh, television debate, and the one who's, like, more outspoken and more outrageous then gets some more attention, and so if, if you just... If your opinions are neutral or if you're a very calm person, you're never going to really attract the media. So I think that the main issue is that the people are, we're very focused in like very small videos and with very big reactions. And so we're just used to that now. Yeah. Yeah. I have an example actually with the US, like, um, you know, like I'm Latino, so and people in America, like a lot of politicians have started using Latinx, you know, like yeah. as, a, as, a, as a term, right? And um, it's great because it's the idea of like behind the idea behind it is like it's more inclusive, but the, in reality, first it's unpronounceable Spanish. Like you know, like it's like it's Latinx, which is not doesn't have a ring to it. <laughs> and secondly, like most Latinos don't like it. It was you know enforced upon the uh, upon the Latino community in America by academics that thought that the language you know like might be non-inclusive and therefore they need a term for us. So they decided for us that we needed a term. You know, and that's. Uh, I think that's the negative part of it, by which um, academics can say, oh, this is not inclusive enough, let me change this part of their culture, let me change this part of, uh, of, of what you believe to make it better for my opinion or what I hold dear to me, you know? And they completely forget that we in Spanish have our own gender neutral term, which is Latina, or like with, a, with an E, you know, but... <laughs> but also like a lot of times, like politicians don't always take the time to go to the community and really ask their opinion on yeah. it. It's just like, okay, we're going to do that and we're going to change, but then maybe the community itself doesn't yeah. really want or feel comfortable. So I think there's there's a bit of a gap there that yeah. it's you know, it's creating a lot of struggles, especially right now. Yeah. And I think as well it assumes that communities are act the same. <laughs> like yeah. It assumes that communities act, are this monolithic thing, you know, that people every, every act the same. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you ever got cancelled? I don't no. think so, but also like, very, I'm very like neutral in like big settings. No. Because I'm very scared. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really cancelled, but I think um, I think I have uh, these two friends um, that we always kind of, we make it kind of a thing to talk about controversial topics. And when you have these controversial, and we, all three of us, we feel like we've known each other for a long time and, you know, we tell each other, like, okay, we're not... We, we are expressing our opinions in the beginning and then usually it, someone changes a little bit and eh, you know but we make it a thing to you can say whatever you want and like no boundaries yeah no boundaries oh my god like if you, if, like if you no but really if you 
you know, sometimes I can be a little bit expressive, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I have a, you know, I have a set mind on something, but sometimes they manage to change me, but we really make it a thing to, you know, talk about it, see what each other thinks, in, enlighten other, each other, like, this is an experience that I had, and uh, no, I don't think this, because someone said this or that, I'm not going to give uh, examples, because, you know, not that, you know. <laughs> but I think uh, it, it's not the fact that they cancel me, but they do sometimes tell me, like, Franca, you cannot say that. And I'm like, I know, but this is in our in our conversation, and they say, yeah, true, and sometimes they say something. And in that sense, yes, I have been cancelled in the sense that, you know, uh, think about what you say, how, and, yeah. But I think it's also important to have that. For those yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of people don't have that. And to yeah. have those type of friends... In, in school settings are hard to find and you know the fact that they are also open to these kind of things sometimes we do talk about stuff uh, in our courses and stuff yeah. and then I say yeah you know I learned about this what do you guys think and then they we have a long discussion so no I have not been cancelled okay but more in these friendships now and then yes I, I think everyone has that, yeah. Like in private settings where you're more open and like feel safe, then yeah. there it's easier also to voice and. But I would argue say that. everyone have the like have these controversial topics because they are yeah. interesting. They're so interesting what other people think. Where you think, well, I never thought of it like that. And that's how you learn, actually. Yeah. That's how you learn how where other people come yeah. from. I have like really controversial topics, uh, topics of discussion with my friends, yeah. and I've learned. <laughs> Stuff that I perhaps I think my friends should be ashamed of, yeah. but at the same time, yeah. <laughs> all this stuff that I'm like, oh wow, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I never thought of it this way. Exactly. Yeah. Different perspectives, yeah. yeah, it's always yeah. very interesting. And mm. then you also know when you really should cancel someone or not, because yeah. and in the future, I mean, like then you know. But I understand where they're coming from, and I think mm. that's uh, a thing of uh, that relates very nicely to this, you know, cancel uh, uh, society, I guess. Uh, that we should keep in mind. So. Um, yeah. Thank you all very much for listening to this new episode of In Retrospect. We are also very curious to hear your take on the research question we discussed today. One more time, the research question was, to what extent does political correctness culture influence academic freedom or basically freedom of speech in general? Please let us know your take through our Instagram at Radiate Radio or send us a mail via radiateradio at basestake.nl. Cheers. <laughs>